Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Sovereign Individual by James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees Mogg. Did you put in Lord or did no, he put his, in Lord? That's his... He put in Lord. <laughs> he's, he's a Lord. I don't know how, what, you, what it takes in? to become a Lord, but he is a Lord. Well, we'll find out because you must be, uh, it must be a sovereign individual thing. But <laughs> the sub-kicker is mastering the transition to the informational age. Can't believe he named himself Lord, but we'll go with it. <laughs> Through all of human history, from basically from the start till now, there's just been three big stages of economic life. There was hunter-gatherer societies, then there was agricultural societies, then there was industrial societies. And now what they're saying is just around the corner, we're coming into informational societies. And we should probably say this was written 26 years ago, 1997. And so they were kind of, we're in the transition between industrial and informational. That's right. And they're not the types who predict quick flash-in-the-pan predictions. They're the types who pick huge shifts and huge trends. So 25s years into it, we could sort of make a, a judgment on how well they've gone up until this point as we go through the episode. Because right now, we're in a situation that has striking parallels in the past. We can make a big analogy from, from previous shifts in history. Probably a, a huge one is in the 15th century, when really life had become saturated by organized religion. And pretty much today, everything's just saturated with politics. Looking back to history, we know what happened at the end of sort of the era that was dominated by the church once the gunpowder revolution came across and drawing some parallels to today we can kind of see what's uh, what may be coming around the corner or as these blokes saw 25 years ago they're probably ticking off a few of their predictions so far pretty well yeah they are so what this book does it explores the social and financial consequences of the revolutionary change we're about to go through today and really in one sense they say they want to really um, help you take advantage of the opportunities of the new age, but I think that's a big ask. I think, well, as we'll find out, they're pretty big changes for you to just surf a wave. It's like a, it's like a tidal wave coming, and they're telling you to just get the surfboard out there and just jump on it and, and catch it and go to the Cayman Islands or whatnot. It's a bit harder than that, but at least we're going to learn about this tidal wave that's going to just wipe you out. They're saying that the industrial revolution, so the previous change that we went through, the last one, was saying it was spread over centuries. It was locally sort of driven there were certain areas where it happened quicker than others and others were a bit slower to catch up and some never caught up but they're saying now this time this transition is going to pretty much happen everywhere all at once and there's no avoiding it so you want to you want to grab that surfboard and jump on the tidal wave otherwise you'll be underwater To see outside an existing system is like being a stagehand trying to force a dialogue with a character in play. They're just in the middle of a play and you're just going to try and interrupt them. Sort of just breaches the convention entirely and just doesn't keep that system of the play functioning. Who's the um, the outsider and who's the insider in this metaphor? I think I think the people are just going along in their play and then someone can't yeah. really just interrupt them. Gotcha. So if you're in the play and someone's off to the side... So they're saying they're the stagehand off to the side trying yep. to talk to you and you're yep. just you're in the play. Yep. Okay. That's so right. that's where we are. We're just we're all in our play. There's a couple of people like the Lord Mogrees or whatever his name is. The Lord is off to the side trying to give us a few words, but we're just playing our play at the moment. That's right. It's hard to break out of that. And that's because the more apparent that a system is nearing its end, the more reluctant people are going to be to adhere to its laws. So if we said this, hey, this society, this tidal wave's coming, yeah. no one's going to just adhere to the laws. You just start breaking the law. I did a little bit of that during COVID. Started going through red lights all the time. I was like, fuck it. And that sort of things that start happening probably at a much grander scale as well. What's the statute of limitations on that? What's that? <laughs> on the on the running red lights. Can they retroactively just go, oh, 
Oh, Jonesy, you ran a couple of red lights back in 2020. Yeah. Here's a fine. Yeah, no, I don't think they can, mate. I think we're done. <laughs> and this is pretty similar to what happened um, during the Roman Empire because it was probably the biggest historical development in the first millennia, especially in the Christian era. But long after the demise, there was still a fiction that the Roman Empire is still together. No one's like, everyone's just going along in the play when everything was just going down in a, in a pretty steady collapse. But, you know, the, people figured out the Roman Empire had collapsed after it actually mattered. During That's it. right. It's a strange one, isn't it? He's saying that the, uh, to use a bit of a metaphor, if it was today, I don't know, say the US government completely collapsed, you're not going to see on CNN, you're not going to see on the news, the government has collapsed today. It just doesn't happen like that. So, thinking back then, no one knew that Rome had collapsed. Everyone thought everything was just ticking along hunky-dory and everyone was kind of just in that play and everything was ticking along and really, it was done. Well, everyone had a vested interest of just going along with the play, right? Like the CNN today, they got a vested interest. They're not going to undermine the things that sort of hold together their own profits, Mm. which is the system. It's really only people with strong character and strong opinions would actually get to the point of dare contradicting it. This is our old mate, Lord. The Lord, man, he's, he can do it. And um, he's doing it in a very good way, I think. And that example of Rome is pretty relevant today for a number of reasons. As we're looking at the conditions of the world today, most books about the future are really books about the present. But what the authors are doing here is they're making a book about the future by making a book about the past. Does that mm, make sense? It does. <laughs> Well, there's a lot more if you're looking at the past and there's analogies of and what they have is uh, the mega political points, mega political forces and um, weird term here, the logic of violence is really what shapes everything in the past. Um, mm. It's a weird, you know, very weird premise to say the logic of violence is really what shapes the past but they make a pretty good case mm. of it in the coming sections. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll back that, that. You're going to learn more about the future from the past than from the present. Yeah. So, I'll back that, yeah. This logic of violence that you speak about, logic of violence. Violence sounds pretty illogical, but actually, no, it's very, very logical. It's very logical. Someone's got <laughs> a gun. It's like, yeah, you better to be feared than loved. A bit of yeah. Machiavellian sort of spin on it, but it's very true. As we sort of evolved into agricultural societies, if you think about it, if you've got a couple of sheep, a couple of goats, if you've got a, a plot of land, you maybe you want to get a bit more land, you sure as hell don't want somebody else coming and taking your land. You don't want them to take your land. You don't want them to take your herds. You don't want them to take your crops. How are you going to stop them from doing that? Exactly. And that protection of resources is what they say is the logic of violence. Whoever can actually beat the other person is take what they've got is the winner. <laughs> and in this sense, what it meant back then is it didn't really make sense to go out and learn to become Jackie Chan when you're when you're an agricultural society. We're all pretty similar in size and stature. When it comes down to it, who's going to win in a war is actually at, at that stage, it's just going to be about who's got the most people. That's right. Going, going into a fisticuff fight. <laughs> That's right. If you're just growing your potatoes and you think you just want to learn all the skills that you can, get all the uh, weapons you can to protect your potatoes, if 10 blokes come around the corner, they're probably going to take your potatoes. So, it's yep. better to join a big group, to have a, a, a big group, a bigger sort of army to protect everybody's communal land and sort of all work together. So, in response to this, what happened, and of course, we've been through history a fair bit, history, a few <laughs> other things going on back then, but the Roman Empire did come in response to this. So, if you're a peasant with a local farm, you basically pay peasant insurance to the local landlord and, and who would be the Roman Empire at the time. So, that's where the idea of taxes came in to actually start paying for public goods and it gave a really good, um, kept the peace really in the area so people didn't go to war and, you know, the Roman Empire eventually is going to kick the ass of anyone else in the area like your barbarians and whatnot. 
That's right. So you, as your farmer, you pay a little bit of your profits over to the government or you know the equivalent of the government. They organise a bit of the army and they collectively protect all of the farmers together. So you're effectively paying indirectly for the protection, yeah? Yeah. But as, as is the case with every new centralised sort of command that comes through, the Romans, they started you know, having a little bit of extra ham and with their uh, dinner with the overlords and a bit of that extra wine and maybe build an extra little uh, mansion over there and a little castle over here. and That's all for your protection, though. All for your protection, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, of course, that's what happens. And there's a lot more corruption and the amount of taxes, for the, uh, it increases over time and gets to the point where it all gets senile quite to the extreme. And that's really what happened with the Roman Empire. They overextended themselves um, from that and then to the point where it, where it obviously collapsed. Yeah. If previously you were paying a small portion and you were getting protection in return, all of a sudden some of that money is being used for other things and then the money that they want from you is going up and up and up, the return on that is really getting really eroded. You're paying a hell of a lot more, you're getting a hell of a lot less and eventually there's a tipping point where you think, no, we can't do this anymore. So in the first few centuries after the fall of Rome, the economy of Western Europe started to wither a little bit. Your infrastructure that obviously previously had centralized command, it started to wither and centuries passed and the aqueducts started to fall and become unusable and your land markets, which had thrived under the Roman Empire, began to, to dry up. And in terms of education, literacy didn't go higher, um, metal, metallurgy receded. So there was a few things that actually went, went downhill because of the fall of the Roman Empire. A weird thing though, that all these markers seem to be going backwards. Strangely though, the individual living standards of say the small farmers, they actually increased over the next couple of hundred years. And the reason was, even though these things all got a little bit worse, they weren't paying those massive exorbitant taxes anymore. So on net, they actually kind of won out of the collapse of Rome. Yeah, on net, eh? But um, so what happened from this point is the next new uh, logic of violence evolved. And this was the idea of heavy cavalry. So previously, you don't matter if you're Jackie Chan, as long as you've got <laughs> 10, 10, uh, 10 pe- it all comes down to the, the volume of people you've got. But now, if someone's got a heavy cavalry, uh, if you think back to guns, germs, and steel, one heavy cavalry with, a, with swords and armor and everything like that could take down tens or up to 100 per unit. So now it came down to who's actually can afford the heavy cavalry and they'll have a disproportionate amount of uh, resources go to them. It's a bit like a late 10th century blade runner and what emerged out of this was actually little castles and kingdoms. So little groups of people would actually try to protect themselves and have their own um, group of knights to protect them. And that's really what emerged out of this as a way of protecting um, people's assets. And obviously from here, the people in the castle started paying their tax to a centralized authority. So that centralized authority that pops up after the collapse of the Roman Empire, now the church pops up and became this centralized command. So in an era here where the military power was kind of decentralized, the church was uniquely placed to maintain the peace and develop the rules and a bit of order that transcended those fragmented local sovereignties. The church, they also were important for spreading technical knowledge and information. They sponsored universities, they produced books and manuscripts. They also took a role in helping farm managers who were becoming more literate. They helped them become a great deal more productive so they increased the productivity of european farming they undertook uh, many of the functions that today have since been absorbed by government including the provision of public infrastructure and they also helped incubate a more complex market where they constructed and helped sort of deepen markets for many artisanal uh, specialties and also engineering skills so like every centralized authority eventually it, um you know things change and then new forces 
causes these change and we end up living in a different world. So as, as you were saying there, actually, the church did a few things which were pretty good, but they did a few things which were pretty bad as well. When they start getting a bit ahead of themselves and not just doing the good things, they, they start making more bad than good. One of them being monopoly pricing, a bit like the nation state today, they really started regulating specific industries to underpin their own interests and use their regulatory powers just to gain revenue that directs it in a certain way. They started doing really weird shit and they started just like, Asking for money for everything. Mm-hmm. So, your local, your local priest, all of a sudden, there's this new rule. You know, the priest, you can go out and have a root. You can go out and have sex um, if you just give us a bit of cash. Yeah, they said that you're not allowed to have sex within a marriage on Sundays, Wednesdays, Fridays, or 40 days before Easter or 40 days before Christmas for that whole period. But there was a catch. You know, if you wanted to, you know, if you thought in that 40-day period you got a little bit frisky, okay, you can break the church's rules, but you've got to cough up a bit of cash yeah. in order to do that. And like obviously indulgences in any sort of sin, you can go out there and do something. You can do some pretty bad shit out there as long as yeah. you just pay us. Just do, any, <laughs> do what you want basically except for as long as you pay us. That's right. It's only to cross the, a bit of a blurred line there from, you know, the church meant to be maintaining the good and, you know, repelling evil and sin, but you're allowed to do some bad shit as long as you send a bit of coin back. So another one here is like the bureaucratic overlords. So you had more and more priests, you had more and more uh, bureaucracy in it and the way things work. So, they actually attract more and more cash to the centralized authority and, you know, incapable of sustaining themselves at really any sort of revenue. Every year, they sort of need more and more revenue to actually just keep this thing going. There also seemed to be a bit of a diversion of the flow of funds. It's uh, <laughs> one way of putting it. <laughs> they were, they were, the, the taxes were getting higher and higher or the equivalent of taxes. And the church initially was meant to be used for all these public goods, all these good things to support everybody. Like we said, the universities and helping improve uh, productivity of crops and uh, all this stuff. But now all of a sudden, there's a few sort of general overhead expenses. You know, as the as the church grows larger, they need to sort of pay to keep the lights on metaphorically. Oh, yeah. Well, and literacy, <laughs> probably literally for, you know, you got Pope Alexander here who probably had, a uh, what do you say, a cardinal. So, one cardinal, he stayed a famous orgy in Siena with the most, you know, beautiful women of the whole city it invited. So, and even the, the brothers and the fathers and husbands, of course, they couldn't They didn't get up. the invite. <laughs> didn't get the invite. Um, and servants kept score of each man's orgasm. There you go. And the Pope uh, admired this great uh, yeah. vitality. So, if you're paying taxes and you got, why not get invited to this Pope's party? Yeah. If you're a young, single, horny man, especially. Yeah. Well, all the, the cardinals that popped off the most times were regarded as the most strong leaders. <laughs> You'd be thinking, hang on, hang on, what's going on here? Probably a bit similar to us today. Um, <laughs> in what sense? <laughs> as in what's going on Oh, we'd be confused. Oh, well, with the, some, of the, some of the government spending, you could say, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, really what the, the, the reasons the church came to existence at the start, they did all this good shit. Hmm. Then they started doing all this bad shit. <laughs> yep. They got ahead of themselves. And then a new mega political force came in. And this was the gunpowder revolution. So, remember the church was about of came out of knights and that was the initial spark of it. Gunpowder revolution went back to the old peasant days where all it came down to, you think about the First World War, who's got the most soldiers, who's got the most guns, who run up against each other Mm. and bang, bang, bang and whoever's got more people wins. So, it went back to that and that's really where after the church demise, something new came in its place and that was the nation state today. So, previously, you know, what we think of as being an Australian citizen or US citizen or uh, Nicaragua or wherever, wherever the hell you might be from. That's who we see as our centralized identity today. 
back then, it was all about being under the church, the church, the church. The church wasn't really, you know, identifying with the country. That's right. So instead of the cardinals going bang, bang, bang in their special parties, now you've got the armies going bang, bang, bang in a different sense. We can see the returns. <laughs> Violence is on the rise again. The church managed to keep things pretty civil for uh, for a couple of hundred years while they were they were sort of pretending to run things for the in the name of good. But now we can see that violence is back on the rise. That's right. So that's what happened. The nation state came in five centuries ago, and this whole book's really been an analogy. Those things we were saying before in roundabout ways sort of happened again. The mega political force that brought in the nation state. So yeah, the nation state popped up, and the centralized bureaucracy and the amount of sort of tax and income redistribution going um, centralized is, is increasing and increasing and and you know it's more questionable how it perhaps is being spent than it was in the past and we don't really see that the cost it's not always obvious it's more of an opportunity cost which it doesn't really actually come to top of mind does it and interestingly the costs these new costs they were they really fell most heavily upon the more ambitious and more hard-working peasants the ones who depended more on the aristocracy uh, upon deploying their capital usefully, they paid the most in supporting the extravagant bureaucracy. The ones that depended more on the aristocracy deploying their capital usefully, they paid the most for supporting this new extravagant bureaucracy. So the big mega political force is the uh, information age. What were you doing in 97, Ashto? You would have been a very was, young... Yeah, I was three or four. I wouldn't even knew what the internet was when I was seven. Probably most people didn't know. No. 99% of the population. So this is very early days where he says this new information age technology is a new mega political force that's going to change everything. But that's basically <laughs> you know, what, he's, what he's saying here. Big Lord Reese or the Lord and the Mog, he just, they thought, the authors here, they thought the capacity for expansion here was just, they used the word stupefying, which to me just sounds really, really wild. Mm. There's, there's, with more money being spent on communication because it was so cheap, as in the internet being able to spread information further and faster and wider than ever before, all these things that where the, the World Wide Web is going to deliver a rich mix of signals to every computer around the world and bandwidth is, is going to continue to increase and increase and increase, they're saying that this is really unlocking the potential for this next major massive shift. He says there's going to be a world with enough graphic density, and there's a few things we'll, we'll see how he how he went. But he's, enough graphic density to become the metaverse. Mm-hmm. Don't know if Zucks who came up with that first. I don't think you could ask Zucks for a few million coining that phrase. I think I don't think this guy coined it. I think that came a few decades before. I oh, did it. Yeah, I okay. think so. Yeah, but the big question is, it's that protecting what? Like in every sense, there's a a point in the journey of whatever the centralized uh, bureaucracy is, what the hell are they actually doing now? Um, mm. It went through every other part of the journey and as society's become richer, whilst the total percentage taken in taxes is still rising significantly, really a question worth asking, especially for the people who are actually holding most of the goods. Yeah, if you think, you know, 2,000 years ago when you had a little farm, you, it was probably worth paying a little bit to the Roman Empire to have their army protect you. And if you think about then the church was kind of the next bit where you paid for the protection. Now you're saying that previously the government, you're paying for protection. Now it's like, well, what, what are we paying for? What are our taxes using? What are they protecting us from? So the new era we're living in, and this is their words, there's going to be a more advanced stage where there's a transition to true cyber commerce. Um, not only transactions are going to call, uh, be caused on the internet, there's actually going to be low orbit satellites who's going to transmit feeds back and forth directly to a beep in your pocket. 
that's a smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> um, your phone's going to become a bank. Mm-hmm. Smartphone yeah, again. Ninety. Oh no, I said ninety-seven ten times, but worth saying again. Uh, customized media. He said that he's going to have individualized feeds, which is basically social media. Yeah, um, that's another tick. It's another tick, and perhaps the big one, which is the mega political force, is privatizing money and the new the new era of economics, because there's going to be a, a new digital form of money which allows people to become a, a, their own private firm. Mm. Sounds like another tick to me as well. <laughs> the odd uh, bubble or revolution book, which was written what twenty three years after this one, basically said, "Yeah, these guys were these guys were kind of onto it." We mentioned in that bubble or revolution how cryptocurrencies and digital currencies are effectively a hedge against inflation in the sense that traditional inflation is when the big governments are printing money and you know that the I guess the, the cost of everything is going up and up and up because money's flying around because there's more money in the system. Whereas for cryptocurrencies, where it's quite fixed. And sometimes even deflationary because people are losing their hard drives in the tip from 10 years ago. So really the advent of this new digital currency that these guys predicted 25 years ago is saying that that's really going to eradicate inflation potentially. Potentially, yeah. So previously with the government had a, like, a monopoly on the currency. They could, if some, you know, some issue pops up, they just print money and solve it. And uh, they could just do that ad infinitum. But you know, that allowed them to, to go in such deficits where... At the end of the day, probably the hardworking peasants are the ones paying off in the long run, but they no longer have that monopoly on on currency because of this advent of, of cryptocurrency. So, you know, if people can actually control their money um, and not allow governments to defraud them by by printing it and sort of er- eradicating the value of money, then there's a new dilemma for Western governments around the world. The governments are going to face sharp drops in revenue from taxation. In fact, if you're, if you're trying to opt out of the government system, and that system is where you're paying tax, and all of a sudden they don't have control over that money, then the government, there's going to be less people paying tax. Uh, there's going to be a hell of a lot of the rich people opting out of paying tax, and the government's going to think, hang on, how come we're the, the stream that's flowing into our big coffers seems to be getting a bit of a, a trickle these days? Bit of a trickle, bit of a little whittle. And if you think about like, um, and this is playing out probably more in the US than Australia, you could say, but you hear places like California where the tax is increasing a lot in that specific place where rich people used to be and they're like, why are we paying, you know, we've got the power here to move ourselves mm. so why would I stay in California when they're raising the tax? I'm going to go to Texas where there's lower tax. So, at the same time, you've got the places that are raising the tax are actually getting the least, you know, the having the greatest loss to themselves. Mm. So, they're going to um, go towards that bankruptcy quicker than all the other places. And that's obviously on the state-to-state level. If you scale that up, eventually it could be on the nation level. If you think that some countries are charging exorbitant amount of taxes and you're not really getting much benefit as a result, then you might just head to a different place that is charging a hell of a lot less tax. That's right. So the countries and um, governments used to have a monopoly on things like this, but not anymore. There's going to be a bit of a competitive tendering really to have these sovereign individuals, the ones who have actually got all the cash and the disproportionate amount of wealth, then you know, where are they going to go with it? So, mm. you know, new places are going to pop up that actually have a better situation for them and people are going to hate this sort of shit, hearing this sort of shit. And I totally, totally get that because like previously the government had made a lot of sense to deal, but for them, it's like, it just doesn't make sense anymore. I'm going somewhere else. So, this is where you're going to see the first smaller jurisdictions at the provincial level, really. So, we can see the winners of this new shift are going to be the rich people with all the money who get all the control and they get to choose to go somewhere where they don't have to pay as much tax and they can do what they want, then who are the losers then? The losers of this information age are going to be the people who are the most dependent 
on the government, I guess. The people that are tax consumers, they say, they're going to be the losers. The ones who are uh, getting the welfare payments or the ones who are most reliant on you know, the government fixing the potholes in the road and whatever else the government is doing for them, they're going to be the losers because the government all of a sudden is getting less tax coming in. So there's also less spending going out. Well, if you've got a jet plane, you don't really need to worry about those peasants' potholes, right. do you? That's right. Tax consumers, that's one interesting way of labeling the, the people in welfare, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose you are consuming tax in a, in a way. So the left behinds, probably the tax, another word for these consumers, they're going to be pretty unpleasant from all this and perhaps fair enough. But at the end of the day, they're saying citizenship is going to be a bit like chivalry back in the day. Back in the day when I'm, say, I'm, well, today we say I'm Australian. Back in the day, you'd say I'm chivalrous, I'm, I'm, I'm religious, I'm to this church. They're pretty similar things. They're pretty arbitrary from the perspective of history, the long arc of history. You know, Australia is just a, as you think of Yuval Noah Harari's books, it's just a, just a flag, really. There's no mm. real difference between us and a German or whatever. Um, so that arbitrariness will disappear and your, your sort of loyalty to your nation is, is going to erode as well with these forces. And they say, well, because of this, if governments see this coming on the horizon, that the sort of allegiance to their flag is uh, is being reduced, then maybe one or maybe multiple nations might think, well, rather than having everybody spreading around so much, maybe we should uh, take some kind of action to stop international travel in a sense. Well, what can we do to stop people from traveling internationally? And they say, well, one way they could do that is some kind of biological warfare, like say the outbreak of a deadly pandemic oh. um, that stops everybody from traveling internationally. There you go, mate. I feel like they got into a little, little us, <laughs> um, what do you call it? A little time travel capsule. <laughs> Obviously predicted the COVID pandemic there in, in some interpretations of how it happened. <laughs> so these new mega political forces... Um, you could say it's 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 pretty it's pretty remarkable what they've come up with. The trend of say government deficits, you can't really deny that. You can't deny that individuals are becoming richer and governments are trying to raise taxes. So you sort of extrapolate where that leads to 10, 20, 30 years from now. It's probably like what do you reckon, Astro? Pretty pretty hard to to deny that a potential outcome of bankruptcy of nation states. Yeah, well, that's what they're saying, isn't it? They're saying that the current sort of international government system is going to go the way of the Roman Empire. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big tidal wave coming. How are you going to ride it? <laughs> Get that surfboard out. Basically, to ride this way, you just become rich, don't you? Actually? <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say. It's a, it was a long 700-page book and the kicker is read lots of books, get smart, make a business, make lots of money and then you don't need to rely on the government and you can just become rich and ride that tidal wave. Yeah, become a sovereign individual. Don't rely on the government so much. Um, you know, Get your money, go to the Cayman Islands. They've got a whole bunch of places and I looked up on the internet a few places you can go to if you're, if you're that way inclined. You can go to the UAE, you can go to Singapore. The Bahamas are pretty good. They've got what? You know, 8.79 on this arbitrary website I got where your property taxes are 1% and your capital gains taxes. There's a few few places like that are just calling out for people once you've made the journey. But yeah, got to get on that surfboard first. So they say that the way to do this, well, they don't really give you a recipe. They just say go and read a whole bunch of other books to learn how to get good at business and make lots of money. But they do say that success in business, as in most areas in life, depends on the ability to solve problems. If you can learn or if you can teach yourself how to solve problems, you can have a pretty bright career ahead of yourself. No matter where you live, there are going to be problems that need solving. So if you can be the person who's a problem solver, uh, you're going to be pretty well off. 
So in most cases, people are going to benefit from the solutions of their problems and they're probably going to pay you handsomely to the effect of them and it's probably your pathway to become a sovereign individual if that's, uh, if that's the way you want to go. Thank you.